Hi everyone, it's Katie. At the risk of sounding tacky, I'm going to remind you that the holidays are coming up. And don't forget your friends at The Bittersweet Life when you're thinking about people you might want to give to for your charitable giving. Now granted, we're not a nonprofit. We're kind of a no-profit, really. And thanks to the support of people like you who listen, we've been able to create this show without losing money. Now, in the coming year, we'd like to expand our reach, reach other expats around the world. And we're interested a little bit in exploring the possibility of hiring some sort of marketing expert to help us out in that regard. And we can't do that without financial support from you. Visit the donate button on our website. Click it, donate to us through PayPal, or send us an email and we'll send you an address to send a check to. I know it's tacky to ask for money sometimes. But to keep this podcast going and maybe even dream of growing it so more people like you can find us, we need your help. Visit the donate button at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Was that tacky? I mean, you're thinking about charitable giving, right? Or Christmas presents? You guys are great. Even if you just spread the word to a few friends this year, that'll help. But if you can afford it, visit the donate page at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. We're going to take you on a little tour. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about Trastevere, which is the neighborhood that both of us lived in when I was here on my year abroad and Tiffany still lives in but it's also a beautiful place and it's got good sounds and nice history and Tiffany knows a lot about it so so where are we Tiffany? We're sitting in the courtyard of Santa Cecilia in Trastevere church. This is sort of the second most important church in the neighborhood and it's one that a lot of people miss. If tourists do make it over here to Trastevere it's across the river from the major sites of town Usually they hang around the main church, Santa Maria in Trastevere, which is also a great church. But a lot of time they don't get over here to the other side of Trastevere, which is a little bit quieter and a little bit more unspoiled. And this church is the main church of this, let's say, this side of Trastevere. It's a medieval church. It's had several different reincarnations, though. The very, very first version dates back to the 4th century, but it was definitely rebuilt or at least added to a number of times during the... Middle Ages and then as late as the 1700s. But there are still some original aspects to it. Like what? Well, we've got a Romanesque bell tower, which if you want to have a visual of what a Romanesque bell tower is, made of brick and it's got several different levels, if that makes sense, and little arched, not windows because there's no glass, but sort of arched openings and columns. And it dates from the late Middle Ages. So this, I believe is from, I can't remember the exact century, but let's say 9th century, I think, 9th or 10th century, I believe. If you go inside, you can find gorgeous mosaics that are much older than that. They date from the 7th century. And there are some frescoes by Cavallini, who is a probably one of the most, the very, very first important frescoist who is remembered. He's from the 13th century. And there's a gorgeous statue inside that's much later, that's made in 
1600 of Santa Cecilia herself by Stefano Maderno, which is gorgeous. So there's a lot of great stuff in this church. And who is St. Cecilia? Saint or Cecilia, oh, yeah. as we in the United States would say, English-speaking countries. She was a wealthy Roman matron who was converted to Christianity by her husband. This was, of course, illegal at the time. This was, I want to say, the second century A.D. And she uh, was also converting other people and had made her home into a church, which is what a lot of wealthy Christians did during the period in which Christianity was illegal. They would have a sort of secret church in their homes. And a lot of these secret churches then became actual churches when Christianity was legalized. And they're called titular churches now. And they're usually named after whoever it was who originated the church way back when. She was eventually executed for this. The story goes, the legend, which of course, you know, you got to take all these Catholic legends with a grain of salt. It was that... uh, she was uh, locked in the caldarium of her home. The caldarium is a kind of steam bath. So she was locked inside and they tried to steam her alive. Uh, but it didn't work. She survived and she was singing the entire time. She loved to sing. So they decided to decapitate her. It took three tries for them to get her head off. And even the third try didn't decapitate her 100%. Apparently there was some little tiny bit, like maybe one vein, her vocal cords or something, her trachea, her larynx, that had survived because she sang for three days before she eventually died. And so that's the story of Santa Cecilia. That's why she is the patron saint of music. But the story continues because in the 1600s, the church was being completely remodeled, redone. And so the Pope at the time was having the foundations of the church sort of dug up and they discovered her body. And apparently her body was completely intact. It had not decomposed in all those years. So they called a sculptor named Stefano Moderno to come and sketch her and and look at her so that he could create her in marble. And he did, and there's a gorgeous, as I said, a gorgeous sculpture of her lying on her side with a cloak over her head covering her face and her fingers in the position of an old symbol for the Trinity, one finger pointing on one hand and three fingers pointing on the other hand. There's also a plaque right by it that is basically a sworn oath by Maderno that he reproduced her exactly as he saw her. So maybe, maybe it happened, who knows? I find it to be sort of a creepy statue. What do you find creepy about it? Well, the first time I ever came across it, it was a replica, obviously, and it was down in the catacombs. So here you are walking amidst where bodies were, and then there's an actual full body of a person who looks sort of like they just collapsed over on their side laying there. Now, are you talking about the catacombs under this church or other catacombs? No, out, out. On uh, via Appian Tita, yeah. Say there aren't catacombs under this church. There is an ancient site that you can visit, which is, I guess, the original home of Saint Cecilia. So I just want to make that clear. Yeah. So I think because I came across it under those circumstances for the first time, it just had that eerie feeling because it's already eerie and claustrophobic to be in the catacombs in general. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I went into the catacombs, I asked the guide, because I had heard that you could go wander through them alone. I said, are all of the tours guided like this? And he said, they are now because apparently people got lost. They go on for miles and miles and way down into the earth and they couldn't find their way out for days, which is a horrifying idea, by the way. If you have ever been in the catacombs, you know it's just a labyrinth where you just can't tell which way you're going. Yeah. 
It's a horrifying thought. So I actually didn't really enjoy visiting the catacombs. I found it very claustrophobic. But but yeah, that's where I encountered it. But it is a beautiful statue. Really, really beautiful. It really differs from the other works of art of that period. This is the Baroque period. Now, I've just said, I said at the beginning that it was from 1600, but something is telling me it's actually from 1699. I am on maternity leave, so <laughs> that's my excuse. I'm sleep-derived. I can't remember exact dates anymore, but it's either 1600 or 1699. <laughs> I don't know. That's a big spread there. But anyway, I, I want to say it was sort of the Baroque period, but it doesn't at all fit into Baroque style. If you look at that next to a Bernini statue, I mean, they couldn't be more different. I mean, I love Bernini, so I'm not saying I prefer one over the other, but it, it is nice when you come across an artist who could detach himself from the style of the day, as Caravaggio did, and that's why we love Caravaggio, too. Let's go back and listen to the Caravaggio episodes. Where would you like to move on from here? Do you have an idea? Yeah, we should go check out the uh, remains of the medieval synagogue. Okay. And we'll be right back. We are now in a very narrow little alleyway with cobbled streets and... And I'm trying to give you a visual <laughs> with cobbled streets, orange plastered walls that are kind of crumbling, vines everywhere vines. with white, little white flowers mm-hmm. blooming. Walls and lots of scooters parked. <laughs> so this is via Vicolo del Atleta, literally the alleyway of the athlete, athlete's alley. And uh, there is a little facade of an ancient, or let's say medieval synagogue on this street. Now, if you have been to Rome and have done your homework, you might know that the Jewish ghetto, the Jewish neighborhood, is on the other side of the river, on the, let's say, the main side of the river. But it wasn't always that way. The Jewish community used to live over here in ancient times. They used to live over here in Trastevere. And they eventually sort of migrated over to the other side of the river because this side was very unlivable with lots of flooding and things like that. This was the original, or one of the original, uh, Roman synagogues, and it dates from the 10th century, 10th or 11th century. And so what we're looking at is a two-level facade with arches, little columns with a very small but noticeable Hebrew inscription on one of them, and uh, some other little medieval details. Unfortunately, what's inside is not original. The inside has been completely destroyed or lost or who knows what happened to it. It's now a restaurant. It's a really good restaurant, but it's totally modernized inside. One other thing did survive, though, the basement, what is now the wine cellar of the restaurant. And that's much, much older than the synagogue itself. It dates back to the first century AD. And the owners love to show off and say it's older than the Colosseum, which it is. The Colosseum was built in 70 AD, and this was just a little bit earlier than that. What was it? It was probably part of an ancient Roman home. There's a lot of these, they call them cantine now, which basically means like a cellar. What they really were, were, you know, parts of ancient homes or ancient buildings that just never got touched. And the owners of the building discovered them, maybe by accident, and excavated them out. So it's now the wine cellar of the restaurant, but there was something else discovered down there. An ancient statue called the Apoxiomenos, which is a statue of an athlete as a runner, He is very tall, long-legged, and he's in the process of basically cleaning himself uh, with an instrument they had. Now, I can't remember the name of it, Baby Brain. And it was used to um, get the sweat off of their bodies after a race or after exertion or something like that. This statue is now in the Vatican Museums. That's how important of a sculpture it is. And it was found in the late 1800s. 
but that is where the name of the street came from. And one of my little secret loves is the names of streets in Rome and where they come from and why they are called what they're called. And this street is called the Athlete's Alley because of that statue that was found here. And I just think that's too cool. Don't you think it's surprising that a statue like that could just be left somewhere and then over time built over, built over? It just seems like at some point when you were rebuilding the house in the Middle Ages or something, you would think, well, I got to get this out of here, you know? <laughs> or something well, like they that. probably didn't. Rome was always being flooded. In ancient times, this was not a problem because there was a very sophisticated sewage system and drainage system that would get rid of the excess water. By the Middle Ages, that had all gotten blocked up. No one was taking care of it, so it didn't work anymore. So every time there was a flood in Rome, pretty much every winter, the water would just solidify and become a layer, a new layer of mud, of silt, or whatever. It just, And that's why the level of the city has risen so much. In some places, as much as 8 to 10 meters. Over the years, over the, the centuries, little by little, maybe a cent- centimeter at a time, so in the Middle Ages, when they were building new places, they didn't have the time, resources, or even the care to, you know, build things really properly. You know, they were just sort of built on to an earlier structure. And there was also not really an appreciation for ancient art during the Middle Ages. Not a lot, especially the early Middle Ages. They were just, you know, oh, here's, a, you know, an ancient house. Here's the, here's the foundation of an ancient house. Great. We don't have to build a foundation. Let's just build over it. That's what happened. And so it was probably completely under solid mud, this statue. And it wasn't until the 1800s when people started caring about archaeology. That's really the late 1700s, 1800s is when archaeology was born. Nobody cared before that time. They started digging for that stuff. So interesting because I often think as I'm walking around, particularly when I know it was a historic spot, for instance, Circus Maximus, which is now just a gravel field, really, can't help but think to yourself, I wonder how much stuff is buried under here. Well, a lot of stuff is under the Circus Maximus, actually. And they're starting to excavate some of it out. If you go to the far end, towards the Aventine Hill, you can see that they're excavating that corner. I don't know if they're going to excavate the entire thing, but the foundation of the seats, they're still there. They're covered in grass. (laughs) I know. I know, it's amazing. All right, so where do you want to walk to now? We're starting, we're on the move now. Let's head to Via della Lungaretta. Okay. We are standing on one of my favorite streets in Trastevere. It's called Via della Lungaretta. And to people visiting Rome, or even I think people who live here, it seems like a typical narrow medieval street, Roman medieval street. Well, it's not actually a medieval street. If you stop and look at this street, Compared to the other streets around it, this street is very, very straight. It may not be wide by our standards, but by medieval standards, it's actually a pretty wide street. To give you an idea, two cars could probably pass each other on this street, but not barely, barely, and not much else, not much else. So it's all cobblestone, of course, and there's a lot of medieval uh, buildings lining it. I suggest that if you do come to Rome and do find the street, look up as you walk down the street because you'll notice there are a lot of buildings from the 1800s in Rome that were put up when the country was unified. But on this street, you can find a lot of the original medieval buildings that have been here for a thousand years longer. Maybe not a thousand, but you know, a lot longer. <laughs> but what's uh, cool about this street is that if you stand on one end and you look straight, if you stand on the end by Santa Cecilia, to give you a reference, and you look down the opposite direction, 
you can see almost to Piazza Santa Maria in Trastevere, which is a very, very long street for the medieval period. They did not go in for city planning back in those days. It was just the street, wherever it happened to be, is fine. And, you know, if you wander around the center, you'll feel like you're walking in circles because the streets, they never go straight. They're always at weird angles to each other. And that's how it was in the medieval period. And the only big straight streets you can find in Rome are generally modern streets or ancient streets. See, that's the thing. The ancient Romans did go in for city planning and they did build really nice long straight streets. And this is one of them. And this was actually the urban part of an ancient Roman road called the Via Aurelia. Even most Romans, even most people who live in Trastevere do not know this little tidbit that this is a continuation of that ancient Roman consular road. It used to eventually reach the Giannicolo Hill, go up on a viaduct, which is gone now, and then meet, let's say, the major part of the Via Aurelia. So we're actually walking down an ancient Roman street at this time, a street that has been around for at least 2,000 years. I think it also inspires artists, too, because it's one of the streets where I'll be looking at a painting from who knows when and I'll recognize some building and I'll realize that it's one of the ones that are on this road even if it's out of context or I once saw a Persepe which is like a nativity scene and in Italy it's a diorama culture and they really build their nativity scenes to be like villages and it was actually built to um, that corner that we can see from where we're standing Vicolo della Lucia that house was the center point of Really? The Persepe, and then everything around it was there as well. And then they had, you know, little chickens and people roasting stuff over an open fire, like they do in a medieval scene, along with Mary, Joseph, and the baby. But and how did you recognize that, that, uh, that house? Well, they had part of the sign cut off, and I said to Derek, that house looks so familiar. I feel like I've seen it a million times. And then I was just walking here the next day and it, there it is like that that's the house that was in that Persepe. It's so cool I yeah. love it when things like that happen yeah it's really cool and kudos to that person for making it so perfect it was exact representation so you can come to Tristevere and look at that little house it's shorter than all the other ones so it's a little charming yeah and that's what gives you that's what gives you sort of a clue as to the, the medieval buildings if you if you need help recognizing them they're generally not more than two maximum three stories high they always have a roof that sort of hangs out over the edge of the building and it's generally got wood beams along it on the underside and the windows are often smaller they're often uh, arched and there's little details around the outside like little mini battlements that kind of thing don't they usually have a cross in the center of them or is that not medieval? in the center of the windows that's early renaissance actually those are called guelph windows 1400s gotcha. okay so where do you want to lead us now i don't know let's just follow our we'll follow the straight road that the romans made that sounds like a good plan <laughs> i should note that i almost lived on this street but that's right at the last moment Sometimes getting a rental real estate in Italy is not the easiest thing in the world, and our negotiations did not go well, and they were not <laughs> having it after that. Even though we begged and pleaded for about a month to let us move into that place, they would not do it. Were you offering too little, or was there a different problem? Well, eventually we were offering whatever they wanted, but they kept saying, no, no, uh, we have to move another tenant in there. And, it was right across the street from the used English language bookshop, mm -hmm. which is here, which we did an episode in during our smell episode, yes. which I loved. And I thought, living across the street from a used bookstore on a little quiet road that's it's full of medieval picturesque. buildings. Is it oh. this one right here? Yeah, it's right here. Number this could have been mine. 100. 
159, that iron gate would have been my window. I think that, uh, I don't think I saw this place, but I wouldn't want to live on a ground floor on such a busy street. Well, it would have been hard to have the windows open, it's true. But it was so cute in there, you would have loved it. Yeah? Cute in the way that my apartment was not cute at all. Anyway, we do uh, go on. <laughs> so we're walking straight and we're about to, uh, once we get to the other side of the road, we'll also pass my favorite shop for window displays that I've ever encountered in my life. Is that the perfume shop? Yes. We have to get a picture of that. Put it on the, yeah. on the website. All right, well, I'm going to pause for a moment until we get to our next location. Should we just stop and get some cookies? <laughs> if you'd like. Yeah, we're standing outside of a bakery. What better time? <laughs> Let's go. Let's in. do it. My favorite accordion player. Yeah, he's good. Atento. Atento. I like the girl, or I, I don't know if it's a girl or a guy actually, um, on Pontisisto Bridge. That's the one. That's my favorite accordion player. I would love to know this guy's story. So do you want to sit at the steps here of my favorite fountain? or? Sure, okay. sure, sure. So where are we now? So we're in Piazza Santa Maria in Trastevere. It is not the first time we've taped here. Oh friend. no, I think we've done it a couple times I actually. I think so. The last episode before you moved back to the States, we started here. I know. That was a sad morning. <laughs> it really was. We're about to have that sad morning again. You know that. I know. Actually, I don't know if I'll even see you that morning. But Probably maybe not. it won't be as sad, though. I have hope that, you know, we're, we're going to continue to see each other once a year-ish, let's say, once every other year. That would be nice. Yeah. We're going to be in Seattle next, next spring. I know. That's so nice. I know. Can't wait. We're taping in a totally different capacity. All right. So we came here because this is the um, central square. I feel like we shouldn't say too much about it because... Because we've, we've already taped. covered it. Yeah, <laughs> we've already covered it, but this is my favorite place to sit in Trastevere. It's very open. There's always a lot of people going by, and so there's a lot to watch. Yeah, it's a great people-watching spot. And it's a good spot to write, although after a while, your back gets really tired. But yeah. when I was back in Seattle, oftentimes when I was really missing Rome, I would try to picture myself sitting on these steps, watching the world go by. You know, maybe you come and join me. Picture myself here looking at this church, which is... A, a beautiful church. Yeah, it's just very comforting. There's something about this place. This is like the home of Trastevere to me. Yeah, me too. It kind of is the the heart of Trastevere. And I can still remember when I first moved here, actually. We met somebody that was visiting in town for lunch. And I hadn't spent a lot of time in Trastevere yet. And they led us on such a way that we ended up in this piazza. And I was so confused about where I was at that time. <laughs> I thought, how could I have not have seen these giant statues of popes and things like this? I'm like, where am I? I don't recognize this at all. And now it's, I could feel my way here in the dark, blindfolded, probably, just by the sound. Yeah, probably. I feel the same. I remember when I first moved to Trastevere, and I was just wandering around, utterly lost, thinking this is a labyrinth. And now I feel the same. It's like I know these back streets like the back of my hand. I know, and you know how to cut around the tourists who are following the straighter lines. Well, do we have anything we actually want to say about it here? or? Well, I think we've covered a bit about this square, as we said, in, the, uh, in previous podcasts. But I will say that if you do come to Rome, don't stick to just the tourist sites. A big part of being in Rome 
is coming to squares like this. It doesn't have to be this square, but you know, there's a lot of a lot of squares with fountains and steps where you can sit and just people watch. And that is part of being in Rome. And if you miss it, to me, missing that sort of hanging out, just people watching, relaxing, enjoying the afternoon, enjoying the sun. If you miss that, it's almost as bad as missing the Colosseum for me. You've missed a big part of what life in Rome is. And honestly, I haven't ever been into the Colosseum. <laughs> so I literally did miss the Colosseum. <laughs> that's pretty That's pretty hard to do after a year. I know. I just, it always seemed like a hassle. It is a hassle, but if you go in the wintertime, it's not so bad. Yeah. I didn't do it. I don't think I'll ever do it. Maybe I will. I, I love how it looks on the outside, and that was enough. Yeah, it's pretty cool on the inside, too, but it's kind of one of those things that if you see it once, you're good forever. <laughs> uh, my mother-in-law has never been inside. See? There you go. She's lived in Rome for 30 years. No, more. About 35 years. And she's never been inside the Colosseum. Have you asked her why not? I think, you know, a lot of times when people live in a city, they don't do the touristy stuff in that city because they always feel like, oh, I'll do it eventually. And they never get around to doing it. I think that's true for people in, in many different cities. I'm sure there are New Yorkers who've never been to the top of the Empire State Building or a Statue of Liberty, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you been to the Experience Music project. site? In, project, thank you, in Seattle? I have, one time. Mm-hmm. That was enough. Have you been to the top of the Space Needle? I have been to the top of the Space Needle. <laughs> you know, I took your tour when I first moved to Rome. One of them. Have you ever taken anyone else's tour? Oh, lots of times. Lots of times, yeah. Especially when I was learning to be a tour guide. I went on maybe 10 different tours of the Vatican Museums, which was really eye-opening, especially because people say different things. <laughs> <laughs> been on tours of the Jewish ghetto and tours of... I've, I've been on a couple of Caravaggio tours and all different from the tours that I do. I mean, when you do your own tours, you make them your own and you come up with your own route and, you know, your own stories that you like to tell. I, uh, I recently finished a audio tour of Trastevere, actually, using some of the stops that we mentioned and we stopped by today. If you've ever heard of Voice Map, that is the app that uh, I made this tour for. It's a really cool thing and you can download a tour of many different cities. They've got a bunch of cities. You basically listen to it. It's not just some disembodied voice. It's actually a local person who lives there who wrote the tour themselves and who takes you through and you've got a little map on your iPhone and tells you where to go. It's super easy to follow. And so I did one of Trastevere this year. It's up on the on the site. So if you go to voicemap.me you can find that, and it's my same voice that you know so well. I know. I've only gotten to listen to the first half of it. It was a little frustrating for me because I couldn't actually walk it because I was listening to it in Seattle. I thought you did an awesome job on it, by the way. It was inspiring. It also geolocates you, so you're only talking when they're in the right spot. That's the best part about it. That's the like coolest the cheapest thing. tour guide in the world. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you get like within, I don't know how many meters of the site, it just, my voice will automatically start talking about the site where you are. And then I'll tell, after you finish, I'll tell you where to go. So you don't even have to look at the map on the phone. I'll just be like, okay, turn around and go right where it says pizzeria or whatever. That's cool. Uh, They actually just recently asked me to do one for Seattle. That is super cool. Are you going to do it? I'm going to do one. Yeah, I'm going to do it with a friend of mine because I thought it would be fun to... um have two voices back and forth and he's a filmmaker that lives in Seattle and I'm a radio person who lives in Seattle so we thought our contrasting 
views might be interesting. Nice. So we were actually supposed to have it done before I left for this trip, <laughs> but it didn't happen. It, it takes a while. I will be honest. It's a, it's a long process, but it's, it's a really cool product at the end. Yeah. We're pretty excited about it. We already wrote the uh, Pike Place Market one that we're going to do. So. Nice. And we're going to interview other people that are working in the marketplace as a part of it. Oh, cool. Yeah. So anyway, um, so a little earlier, you might have heard an accordion player as we were walking by. That is my favorite accordion player in, in this area. And I didn't see him for the first week we were here, and I thought, oh, no, something, did he die or <laughs> did he move? And we just spotted him again, uh, as you heard, on the way here. And so we're going to go see if he's still there and just find out who he actually is. I've always been curious. So uh, Tiffany's going to help me by translating, even though she hates doing that kind of thing. No, I don't mind. I think I'm going to get an ice cream. I think I need an ice cream. You deserve an ice cream. Yes. Do you think that people mistake gelato for not being ice cream? You mean they think it's something different than ice cream? Yeah, like it's somehow better for you? Or? I think it is better. I don't know if it's better for you, but it's definitely better. And I'll tell you why it's better tasting as soon as I have it in my hand. <laughs> in my mouth, actually. Salve. Um, uno piccolo? Aspetta, quanti gusti? No, due cinquanta. Grazie, è troppo piccolo quello. Um, cioccolato? Eh. No, no, va bene quello fondente. I'm like, what is this ginger like? I'm curious. I'm gonna try the ginger. Posso assaggiare lo zenzero? Interesting, you wanna try this? Okay. All right, what did you pick out? Dark chocolate and ginger. Ginger is quite good. It's very strong. And when he handed me the spoon to try it, I saw this kind of little hair sticking out. And I thought, oh, my God, there's a hair in this ice cream. But it was actually just one of the little fibers from the, from the actual ginger root. Just proves how authentic and how real this ice cream is. Is that why you were going to say that gelato is better? Uh, I'm not going to say that there aren't American ice creams out there that are authentic and are made with authentic ingredients, but it's better because of the way that it's made. It's basically whipped much less, like, you know, you have to whip ice cream, but gelato, as in good gelato, not bad gelato, but the good gelato is made in very small quantities, so it doesn't have to be whipped very much, and the, the result of that is that there's less air in it. So it's denser, it's richer, the flavors are stronger, especially if they're made with, obviously, authentic ingredients. And it has less fat, believe it or not, than ice cream, but more sugar. So probably probably in the end, it's, you know, it's just as bad for you as American ice cream, but I think it's much tastier. At one gelato place I went to, once I ordered a lemon. Mm, that's so good. So good. And I found two lemon seeds mm. in my ice cream. Awesome. Which sounds bad, but I thought, now that's fresh. <laughs> it's as if they were squeezing the lemon right before they handed it to me. Mm-hmm. And probably were. <laughs> and another thing, this has nothing to do with ice cream, but I have opened a carton of eggs before and found a feather. <laughs> Seriously. Organic eggs, obviously. That's lovely. Well, why don't we turn? Well, let's see. Can I see him as he crosses the street? Uh, no, I don't even hear an accordion player. Well, why don't we? Why don't we turn toward home?
Because I don't know if you people know, but Tiffany has a baby here and hasn't slept at all, so she's fading. The gelato is probably, will that cause you to nap, or will it perk you back up again? I don't know. I don't know. The funny thing about babies is, you moms I'm sure can relate, everybody tells you, sleep when the baby sleeps, but it is so difficult. A, because as soon as the baby falls asleep, you're like, oh my gosh, I can finally wash my face, or I can finally do the dishes, I can finally hang up the load of laundry. And I can hang out with Katie. Yeah, and secondly, because, I don't know, something like about the baby being asleep, it's like, I, can, I have such a hard time sleeping when he sleeps during the day. I don't know, even if I don't have anything to do, which is never, but let's say I don't have anything to do, I still can't fall asleep if he's sleeping. But do you find that you lay down and at least relax, maybe read a book or yeah, doze I, slightly? I do try to do that. That's good. That's what you'll do as soon as I get you to your home. Well, probably he'll wake up as soon as I get home, actually. I know, I know. That's the thing. That's the, that's the rub. He's, he's been asleep this entire tour. I, hopefully that doesn't reflect on the interest of this episode. Hope not. <laughs> you'll no, just say he doesn't know the English yet. It, it reflects the soothing quality of my voice, perhaps. <laughs> the musical soothing quality. Do you find that you sing to him a lot? I do. At least every day. At least once a day. I think you'll be a fan of accordion music growing up in Rome. <laughs> Either that or I hate it. I'm sorry to say that the accordion player that we were leaving to hunt down has now vanished into thin air. Uh, I'll drop you off at your house and I'll walk right by him. Probably. <laughs> I really, really, really want to know his story. So if you find out along the way, let me know. I will. We are going to pause here. We're walking down one of the main traffic roads in Tristevere, which as Derek pointed out, it's actually nicer than many of the main traffic roads because it's lined with really big trees. More pleasant, but it's still possibly the most unpleasant street in Tristevere. Absolutely the most unpleasant street. Right. We're walking along that toward Tiffany's home where we will end this tour. All right, so here we are on the final destination of this tour, which is midway between my home and Tiffany's home. And it's also near what? Piazza San Francesco d'Assisi, the square of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, and there's a church here, right in the square, called San Francesco Aripa. The church is named after St. Francis because he stayed here when he came to Rome in the early 1200s to request the Pope to officially recognize the Franciscan order. I believe it was 1209. And if I got that right, it's a miracle. <laughs> uh, but I, I believe that's the year. And, uh, and he stayed in the monastery of this church. Now, the church itself has been pretty much completely rebuilt. But the monastery that's attached to it is still original. Or at least they've managed to preserve the cell that St. Francis stayed in. And you can visit it. It's a, something that a lot of people don't know about, even people who live here. All you have to do is come during opening hours, which means avoid the sort of noon to 4 p.m. slot. And there's generally a custodian in the church taking care of the church. And if you ask him, he will take you up to St. Francis's cell. Now, I should say, if you come and you want to do this, make sure you're dressed properly, that you have your shoulders and your upper legs covered, because it is really, for them, it's considered a very, very holy site. You don't have to pay anything. You can give a little donation. There's a place where you could put like a couple coins in if you wish to, but you don't have to pay. It's really amazing because really you get a sense of 
time when you go there. It feels like you're stepping back in time. Very low ceilings, very narrow space. They did build an altar in one end of the cell, which I think kind of ruined it. I'm trying to imagine that's not there. Picture St. Francis staying here. He famously also had a rock that he used as a pillow when he was in this cell. And they have that rock and it's sort of behind a grate. You can reach through and touch it. In the courtyard of the church, which is not always open, but um, you can ask, there is uh, supposedly an olive tree that he planted. So it's quite a cool thing, especially if you are partial to St. Francis, as a lot of people are. What does he mean to you? Well, I mean, I didn't grow up Catholic, and so I didn't grow up with all the stories of the saints and having, like, you know, my favorite saints and things like that. So there's not a huge significance of St. Francis to me personally, Um, but I do, you know, appreciate the fact that in a time in which the Catholic Church was all about the rich Pope and ostentatiousness of the sort of clerical world that someone chose to look at it in a different way and to follow the the teachings of Jesus a little bit more literally. And uh, we're going to leave it there. So that's your tour of Tristevere. Come and see it if you do come and see it and you want Tiffany as your tour guide. Look her up. Yep. You can either download her on VoiceMap or you can look her up through her blog. And you can have the flesh and blood version. <laughs> yes. Significant price difference. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the audio tour is cheaper, but maybe not as charming. No, it's just as charming. <laughs> All right, so we're going to leave it there. And until next time, I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Aurelia was sleeping. And this is The Bittersweet Life. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best.